both of today's two sermons are going to focus in on the book of Jonah. So if you want to go ahead and be finding the book of Jonah, that would be great. We will get there eventually, but it's going to be a while. But at least you'll be there when we're ready. Now, obviously the first thing you think of when you think of Jonah is the big fish, right? I assure you that after the introduction portion of today's two lessons, it won't be about the big fish. That's just in the introduction to get us going, okay? Um, my purpose in presenting these two lessons on the book of Jonah is to get us to perhaps think about some other things from the book of Jonah, some important things that you might not have thought of before because once again, the big fish gets all of the, gets all of the attention, all of the attraction. I will just tell you as well that uh, both of today's sermons were inspired by a book by Brother David Farr entitled Modern Messages from the Minor Prophets. This morning's sermon title is Four Truly Impossible Things Found in the Book of Jonah. Four Truly Impossible Things Found in the Book of Jonah. Now, unfortunately, for those Bible critics who are just looking for some sort of reason or excuse to reject the reality of the existence of God and to reject the authority of his word, the big fish account in Jonah gives them quite a lot of ample fodder for their self-chosen rejection of God's word because many will say it is just not possible that a man could survive that long in the belly of a big fish. Hold that thought for a few moments. Just not possible for somebody to survive that long in the belly of a big fish. Hold that thought. And as you hold that thought, don't put it too far away, I want you to consider this. How many of you Remember seeing this picture floating around the internet in years past. Raise your hands. You've got to be kidding me. How many? Five? Six? That's it? Really? Okay. All right. Fair enough. Well, it's, it's, it's quite a picture. Um, wow, I certainly expected most everybody. Okay, that's all right. That's all right. This was sent to me a number of years ago. And if I recall correctly, it was sent to me by another gospel preacher as this incredible picture. Now, obviously, this picture for me comes to mind when I start thinking about the book of Jonah for obvious reasons. There was also a story that accompanied this particular picture when it was sent to me and apparently as it made its way around the internet. That story said in part the following. This photo was taken at the entrance to Catlian Bay at the end of the road in Sitka, Alaska. The whale is coming up to scoop up a mouthful of herring, the small fish seen at the surface around the kayak. The kayaker is a local Sitka dentist. He apparently didn't sustain any injuries from the terrifying experience. The whale was just around the corner from the ferry terminal and all the kayaker could think at that moment in time was, paddle man, really fast. 
The whale's mouth is fully open with the bottom half under the boat, kayak. If the whale had closed his mouth before he furiously paddled away, he might have been lunch. He is in the whale's mouth. Now, the connection, the, the illustration, the, the parallels to all this with Jonah, I mean, it's just too good to, to miss, right? When you add to this, of course, liking puns as I do, when you add to this, it was a dentist, really, in the whales. I mean, this just, right, this is just really cool, right? It is a fabulous, incredible, once-in-a-lifetime picture. It is no wonder that many people forwarded it and it went around the internet so fast. It is a great, great picture, a once-in-a-lifetime picture. The only problem is it's a total phony. It's a complete fraud. It is an absolute fake. It is photoshopped. The local paper, not too long after this, ran a story on how this thing was a fake. Snopes.com says, like many such passages, this is a manufactured phony, created by merging photographs taken at different times approximately three months apart, by the way, in two totally different locations. Shobi, a local photographer who's known for his incredible pictures of Alaska, Shobi said he was surprised not only that people took the photo at face value, but also at the wide distribution of this photoshopped image. But in the world of the internet, such things take on a life of their own, and indeed they do. But here's the thing, and the obvious question I want to get to. Why is it that people will take, and when I received this, I just thought it was just the coolest thing. I didn't realize it was a fake. I don't think the gospel preacher who sent it to me realized it was a fake or the story that went with it. The question is, why is it that people take something like that, myself included, with too many ironies to possibly be true? It really wasn't a brain surgeon, it was a dentist. Okay. Manufactured by the minds and means of mere mortal men, why is it people take something like this picture to be the truth, but will at the same time turn right around and doubt the things which the God and creator of this universe, who cannot lie, said that he did in the pages of scripture. Why do we do that? For those who say that the Bible cannot be true, in part because it would be impossible for anyone to have survived in the belly of a big fish for three days, I would say several things. Here comes the list. Pen and paper ready, I hope. I would say to them, neither is it possible to raise the dead without the power of God, that is. Jesus raised Jairus' daughter from the dead in Luke chapter 8. Jesus raised Lazarus from the dead in John chapter 11. Jesus even raised himself from the dead once 
he was dead, according to John 10, verses 17 and 18, which says, Therefore my Father loves me, because I lay down my life, that I may take it again. No one takes it from me, but I lay it down myself. I have the power to lay it down, and the power to take it up again. Jesus said, I'm going to die, and then raise myself. Now that ain't possible, except by the power of God. Some other things that are not possible, quote unquote, well, they're not without the power of God, is that after Jesus raised himself from the grave, he then gave that power and ability to some of his disciples in the first century to do the same thing. The apostle Peter raised Tabitha in Acts chapter nine. The apostle Paul raised Eutychus in Acts chapter 20. For those who would say that it's not possible for a man to survive in the belly of a big fish for three days, I would point out not only that, but the fact that Jesus himself said in Matthew 19 and verse 26, with men, this is impossible, but with God, all things are possible. And it was this same Jesus this same Jesus who said that, this same God in the flesh, this same word made flesh that came and dwelt among us, this same son of the living God, that same Jesus who both possessed and possesses and both gave and took away that power to raise the dead, who himself referred to Jonah's three days in the belly of the big fish as a bona fide, certified, historical fact. Keep your finger in Jonah if you're there and just turn with me to Matthew chapter 12. Jesus himself referred to this as a bona fide, certified, historical fact. Matthew 12, beginning at verse 38. Then some of the scribes and Pharisees answered, saying, Teacher, we want to see a sign from you. Verse 39 of Matthew 12. But he answered and said to them, An evil and adulterous generation seeks after a sign, and no sign will be given to it except the sign of the prophet Jonah, for as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the great fish, so will the Son of Man, be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. Jesus did not refer to this as some fictitious thing. He didn't refer to it as some fantasy. He didn't refer to it as some impossibility. Jesus Christ himself referred to this as a fact. As he was three days and three nights there, so shall I be the belly of the earth, and Jesus does not only make this point once, but at least twice. If we move ahead to Matthew 16, and we look at the first four verses, it says, Matthew 16, beginning at verse one, then the Pharisees and Sadducees came and testing him, asked that he would show them a sign from heaven. He answered and said to them, 
When it is evening, you say it will be fair weather, for the sky is red, and in the morning it will be foul weather today, for the sky is red and threatening. Hypocrites, you know how to discern the face of the sky, but you cannot discern the signs of the time. Watch this, a wicked and adulterous generation seeks after a sign. No sign shall be given to it except the sign of the prophet Jonah. Refers to it again. The first time in Matthew chapter 12, he gives a little more explanation, then we see it here again. You know what that means? I'll tell you what that means. That means that you cannot say that you believe in Jesus Christ if you do not believe the story of Jonah in the belly of the great fish because Jesus Christ himself, not a liar, not a fraud, he was the son of God, and he referred to it as fact. As God asked Abraham when Sarah doubted his promise that they would be parents even though he was 100 and she was 90. Genesis 18, 4, God says, is anything too hard for the Lord? And we know the rest of the story, we know the answer is no. As Jeremiah concluded, when he was imprisoned, the Chaldeans were getting ready to, to take over the city and lay waste Jerusalem, and, and God told him to go buy a piece of property, which we covered last week from Jeremiah 32. Jeremiah says in verse 17 of Jeremiah 32, Ah, Lord God, behold, you've made the heavens and the earth by your great power and outstretched arm. There is nothing too hard for you. Brethren, if there's nothing too hard, that ain't too hard. God himself responded to Jeremiah's question a few verses later in verse 27 of Jeremiah 32 when he said, Behold, I am the Lord, the God of all flesh. Is there anything too hard for me? Job said in Job 42.2, I know that you can do everything and that no purpose of yours can be thwarted. I'm sorry, that no purpose of yours can be withheld from you. Yours and my eternal hope our entire eternal hope is built upon the promises of the God who cannot lie, the God who has the infinite power to do anything he chooses to do to raise our bodies from the dead, to raise us from the dead. Remember what the Apostle Paul said in Acts, the King Agrippa? In Acts 26, 6 through 8, he said, Now I stand and am judged for the hope of the promise made by God to our fathers. To this promise are twelve tribes earnestly serving God night and day hope to attain. For this hope's sake, King Agrippa, I am accused by the Jews. Why should it be thought incredible by you that God raises the dead? Paul coming out and said to King Agrippa, why do you think that's such an incredible thing? He's God. Well, if God can raise the dead, if God in the flesh can raise himself from the dead after three days in the belly of the earth, it's nothing. Nothing. So, to those skeptics who would say the story of Jonah being three days in the fish is too impossible to believe, we who believe in his word, we who believe in his promises, we who base our hope of eternal life on the power of God who does the quote-unquote impossible every day, you know what our response needs to be? You know what we need to teach our young people to respond to that? We need to teach them to respond with the very words of Jesus himself to those critics 
As Jesus himself said in Matthew chapter 22 and verse 29, you are wrong, for you know neither the scriptures nor the power of God, period. That is the answer. You're wrong. You don't know the scriptures. You don't know the power of God. God does the impossible throughout the scriptures. So, having said that, Despite the fact that the, the big fish gets all the focus, gets all the, the airplay, as it were, in sermons about Jonah, typically, the fact is we have shown that that's not impossible at all. Did you know that there are several extremely important things in the book of Jonah that are impossibilities? And see, and I'm probably going to mention this again and again, one of the reasons for this sermon series, or one of the things that I hope to generate, when people start talking, because everybody knows this, it's like, you know, everybody knows John 3.16, whether they're religious, ever opened a Bible or not, most everybody knows John 3.16, right? Well, most everybody, whether they've ever opened a Bible or not, knows the story of Jonah and the big fish. They know something about it, right? So what I hope to do is to get us to thinking a little bit differently so that we can engage those people in conversation, and the next time somebody says, ah, I really, I don't know about this Bible thing, I, you know, Three days, that, that's not really possible. I've already given you a bunch of verses that prove that God does the impossible, right? Hopefully you've taken those down. But what I want you to be able to do is to also engage them in a conversation about even though Jonah being in the belly of that fish for three days is not impossible, there are a number of impossible things in the book of Jonah, totally impossible things, things that can't possibly happen. And I want you to tell them about those. And I want to make us aware of them as well. So. This morning, we're going to look at four truly impossible things found in the book of Jonah that often get overlooked in light of the big fish. The first truly impossible thing that we find in the book of Jonah, it is impossible to run away from God. That's the first impossible thing we find. It is impossible to run away from God. You can run, but you can't hide from God. Look at me in Psalm 139, and you can keep your finger in Jonah. We will be there eventually. Look at me in Psalm 139. Psalm 139. One thing I'll say before I read the text I want to read, the part of it is this. Jonah lived quite a number of years after David, and he's going to admit in the first part of the book of Jonah that, that he's an Israelite who fears God, right? So as will be pointed out further on in this little sermon series on a number of occasions, the bottom line is he should have known the writings of David. And one of the things that David wrote, Psalm 139, in the midst of that, we would notice verses 7 through 12. Jonah should have known this. Look how appropriate this is. Psalm 139, 7 through 12. David wrote, where can I go from your spirit? Or where can I flee from your presence? If I ascend into heaven, you are there. If I make my bed in hell, behold, you are there. If I take the wings of the morning and dwell in the uttermost parts of the sea, Jonah, are you listening? Even there. Your hand shall lead me, and your right hand shall hold me. If I say, surely the darkness shall fall on me, 
Even the night shall be light about me. Indeed, the darkness shall not hide from you, but the light, but the night shines as the day. The darkness and the light are both alike to you. He says, no matter where I go, no matter if I think I'm, I'm completely covered by darkness, it, it's all the same to you. You're still going to find me. You still know where I am. You still see me. It is impossible to run away from God. We cannot hide from the power and the presence or the perception of Almighty God. Nobody can hide. You see why this is so important to let people know? This is one of the impossible things. You can't run from God. The writer of Hebrews would confirm in Hebrews 4.13, there's no creature hidden from his sight, but all things are naked and open to the eyes of him to whom we must give account. It is sad, tragic, to the point of heartbreaking today that there are some people who foolishly think, just like Jonah did, for whatever reason, that they can run from God, they can hide from God all over the world. There are Christians, members of the Lord's Church, who have stopped worshiping with the church altogether. I'm not talking about just stopped being in person. I'm talking about, they've just, you know, you know this, you've known this for years. There are people that come to Christ and then just don't want anything more to do. Is that right? You all know people like that. I have. And somehow, they've totally fallen away and, and they think that somehow maybe, uh, they've got to think somehow God doesn't see their sin. God doesn't see that they've fallen away. And, and that's, not, that's not right. God, you can't run from God. There are those all over this country, all over the world, who in some cases have left the Lord's church for some more comfortable, less demanding, ear-tickling denomination made by men. There are, in a lot of cases, those teenagers who grow up in the church, but then flee the moment they become of age, similar to what the prodigal son did in Luke 15, thinking that somehow, God's not going to see or notice or see where they've gone. Then there are those people, those brethren, who seek to avoid at all costs, just like Jonah did, God's instructions to go share the good news with the lost. And it's all, all of that, it's like some, some little child, and I've used this illustration before, but it works so well. It's like some little child who, who covers their eyes and says to God, you can't see me. Well, God can still see them, even though they've chosen not to look to God and his word. Some have deceived themselves into thinking that if they can just get out of earshot of the word, they hear something, if they just get out of earshot of the word, or maybe out of eyesight of the church, that somehow maybe God won't see them that he isn't concerned about them or that he'll somehow forget or overlook them. But brethren, that ain't gonna happen, Matthew chapter 13. Can't run from, you can't hide from God. You can't go where God can't see you. They can be sure their sin will find them out. Numbers 32, verse 23 in Romans chapter two, verses four through 16. With that having been said, let's begin with Jonah one and read the first few verses. Proves the point again. The word of the Lord came to Jonah, the son of Amittai, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and cry out against it, for their wickedness has come up before me. Jonah 1 and verse 3 now. But Jonah rose to flee to Tarshish from the presence of the Lord. 
He went down to Joppa and found a ship going to Tarshish. So he paid the fare, went down into it to go with them to Tarshish from the presence of the Lord. The Lord sent out a great wind on the sea. And it goes from there. Let's read it. The Lord sent out a great wind on the sea. There was a mighty tempest on the sea, so that the ship was about to be broken up. And then the mariners were afraid, and every man cried out to his God through the cargo and threw the cargo that was in the ship into the sea to lighten the load. But Jonah had gone down into the lowest parts of the ship, had lain down, and he was fast asleep. Really, Jonah? <laughs> I want us to notice a few things here. Number one, I want you to notice his predetermined purpose. This wasn't by mistake. This wasn't, you know, we, we talk sometimes about we sin and, and we, we, it's unintentional, okay? This was not unintentional. This was intentional, pre-purposed, planned out, plotted, schemed, the whole nine yards, okay? His predetermined purpose, verse three, was to flee from the presence of the Lord. Jonah's gonna do the impossible. Please notice also, his predetermined provision. He went down, verse three, found a ship and paid the fare. It was about 60 miles if, if he was in his hometown. It was about 60 miles down to the seaport of Joppa, 60 miles. Couldn't go out and you know, hop in his Ferrari and, and go buzzing on down, 60 miles. About three days journey on foot. He makes the journey down there and then he didn't just happen to fall on a ship by accident. He didn't just happen, this wasn't a mistake. He found a ship, he went looking for a ship. He had a predetermined purpose. His predetermined purpose, he finds it and then he pays the fare. He knows it's gonna cost him. That's all in verse three. We would notice simply on the map here. He goes down to Joppa, he's told to go to Nineveh, but instead he heads for Tarshish. Notice that they're almost totally opposite directions, almost, not quite, but, but close. Not only are they totally opposite directions, he'd rather go five times as far to run away from God than it took to run to and do God's will. Wow, Jonah. And, and then notice in verse five of Jonah one, notice his personal peace that he had with, he's down there sound asleep, everything's great. He's completely at peace. He's made up his mind. He's, he's paid his fare. He's made his plan, he's made his journey down to Joppa, and, and everything's just great. I'm running from God, I got this made. Sound asleep, sleeping like a baby. Storms raging, ships bouncing, Jonah's snoring away. Wow, Jonah, you talk about being at peace with your pre-planned and purpose decision. Have you ever known somebody to run away from God and away from the church and they seem to be at peace with their decision to self-destruct? That's Jonah. But here's the thing. Jonah's fast asleep in verse five, but don't miss this. Please, please don't miss this. He's at peace and he's asleep, but the storm still came. The storm still came. Brethren, the storm always does when you run from God. The storm's still gonna come Jonah could not hide, not from the all-seeing God. And neither can anybody else. And if we think we can, we're in for storms that are gonna take us overboard. The second truly impossible thing that we find in the book of Jonah. It is impossible to change 
God's commandments. It is impossible to change God's commandments. For example, <clears throat> compare the command of Jonah chapter 1, verses 1 and 2, with the command that came after he became a big chunk of the big fish's projectile vomit. The command before is in Jonah 1, 1 and 2. The command after is in Jonah 3, 1 and 2. And what is that command? Same thing, Jonah 3, 1 and 2. The word of the Lord came to Jonah the second time. Notice the command hasn't changed. Just because he didn't want to obey it didn't mean it had changed. Second time saying, arise, go to Nineveh, that great city. Preach to it the message I shall tell you. Same message, same thing. The Lord's command did not change no matter how much Jonah didn't want to do it. You with me on this? It didn't change just because Jonah didn't approve of it. His refusal to obey God's command and his choice to run away from God's command did not diminish God's command or Jonah's accountability to it one bit. <coughs> Brethren, we gotta understand this. There's some things God says need to be done just ain't comfortable. There's some things that, that God say need to be done that, that we just don't wanna do. But no matter how much we drag our feet, no matter how much we dig in, no matter how much we run the opposite direction, it doesn't change the commandment, you need to go do this. There are some people who come to our assemblies and they'll hear the truth of the word of God and they'll know, they, they can read what it says and they'll know that, that repentance and baptism is for the forgiveness of sins. They know that, that baptism now saves you. They, they read these things, they understand it. But, it's not what my family believes. It's not what my daddy or my granddaddy or my grandma believed. I, I just can't do it. I can't, I can't do it. It's too hard. Brethren, that don't change the command to do it. I knew a man once in a congregation, older man. Well, you ever notice how we talk about older people and they're usually older than we are, whoever we are. Well, he was an older man, we'll leave it at that. And, <clears throat> um, he was married to this woman who was a member of the church and it was second marriage um, and he had some kids that were part of a denomination who didn't believe that what the Bible says about baptism and all of those things but this man came to church with this Christian sister relentlessly he was uh, I got to give him credit he was always there okay he came with her he, he really did which was good but through years, he never obeyed the gospel. And the comment was made that, you know, well, maybe God will be merciful to him. Meaning, well, you know, he's a good guy and wasn't baptized. Maybe God would just be merciful in, in this one. How much more merciful does God have to be? God has expressed the utmost of mercy and given his son for yours and my sin. How much more merciful can God be? How much more can God give? God has been merciful, just like he's merciful here, but he's not gonna change his commandments. 
That commandment still stands. Whether you obey it or not, just like Jonah, it still stands. It's got to be done that way because that's the way God said do it. God has given us total mercy for all of our sins. Jesus Christ on the cross. He can't give us any more mercy than he already has, but it's up to us whether or not we accept that mercy. It's not, well, if I skip over a few of God's commandments, he'll be okay with that and maybe be merciful. No, he's given us all the mercy he can possibly give us. It's up to us to obey him. Just because we don't obey the command of God to go and do what he told us to do doesn't mean the command is going to change. That would be impossible. Listen, if God did not change his commands or his requirements or his instructions, even for Jesus Christ, his only begotten son, and he didn't, Matthew 26, 39 through 46, Luke 24, 44 through 48, Hebrews 7, 12 through 14, if God did not change his instructions, and you can read those passages later, he didn't, even for Jesus, he wasn't going to change his requirements. Then he's not going to change them for anybody else either. And he didn't for Jonah. It is impossible to change God's commandments just because we don't want to do them. Number three. The third truly impossible thing we find in the book of Jonah. It is impossible, truly impossible, for God to change his character. It is impossible for God to change his character. That's what Jonah's big complaint was in the first place. That was the whole problem here to begin with. Listen. After Jonah went to Nineveh and he preached this message, he preached this message, repent or perish, in chapter 3, and they did repent, and they changed their ways. I want you to look at what Jonah said in Jonah. We'll start in chapter 3 and verse 10 and then flow into 4. 3.10. Jonah's gone there and preached. 3.10. Then God saw their works, that they turned from their evil way, and God relented of the disaster that he had said he would bring upon them, and he did not do it. But it displeased Jonah exceedingly, and he became angry. So he prayed to the Lord and said, Ah, Lord, remember, he's angry. Was not this what I said when I was still in my country? Therefore I fled previously to Tarshish, for I know that you are a gracious and merciful God, slow to anger and abundant in loving kindness, one who relents from doing harm. Therefore now, O Lord, please take my life from me, for it is better for me to die than to live. And the Lord said, is it right for you to be angry? It is impossible for God to change his character. Jonah knew it. Jonah said, I knew this is who you are. I knew how gracious and compassionate you are. I know how merciful you are. This was the whole problem to begin with, Jonah said. That's why I took off the opposite direction. I knew what you were going to do. You're just too stinking loving. Aren't you glad God's loving? Aren't you glad he's patient with sinners? It is impossible for God to change his character. But as, as we look at, at Jonah and his, his complaint here and his anger, the Bible says he was angry. As we look at that, he, he's not the only one that struggled with God being a loving, forgiving God in the scriptures. He's not. 
consider, consider. What about, for example, the older brother in the account of the prodigal son in Luke 15, verses 11 and following. You know the story of the prodigal son. What was the problem with the older brother? He was angry. Why was he angry? Because the father had accepted the erring son back into the family. Is that right? Short version, is that right? He was angry because the father was that loving. Of course, when it came to him, he probably was happy, but not with his brother. Same problem the unforgiving servant had in Matthew chapter 18, 21 through 35. We talked about that in a recent sermon. You know the story. Somebody's forgiven a whole bunch and goes out to somebody who owes him very little and he won't forgive him. You know the story. So he gets dragged back in before the one whom he owed a lot. And in verse 35, it talks about, so my heavenly father will do to you, each one of you, if you don't forgive your brother from the heart. You see, that servant in that story had a problem. He had a problem with God being so loving and so forgiving. And, you know, we all want the love and, and the forgiveness. He, he didn't have a problem with it when it came to him. He wanted it, but he had a problem giving it to others. That was his problem, same as the older son. Hey, Jonah didn't have a problem with the fact that God loved him. His problem was with the fact that God loved everybody like that. That was his problem. And we sometimes get tangled up in that. We, we, all, we all want the love and the forgiveness and the restoration of the relationship with God when we sin and we fall and let him down. Listen, don't you, when you sin, when you let God down, aren't you glad that God loves you and is willing to forgive you, aren't you? Is there anybody that's not? I'm gonna say, if you are, you're in the wrong place this morning. Of course you are. But then sometimes we really struggle to extend that same kind of love and forgiveness and the restoration of the relationship to others when they sin against us and let us down. But God is the same way with both the good and the evil. That is his nature as we read about in the New Testament. God was willing to be very patient and forgiving with the Ninevites in their disobedience if they would repent, right? Right. Just as he was with Jonah in his disobedience when he turned and repented. <laughs> but that irked Jonah to no end. It just, it just ate him up. But brethren, this is one of the things that's so great about God, so great about the love of God. God will relent if we will repent. Aren't you glad that God will relent if we will repent? Romans 11:22 says, "Therefore consider the goodness and severity of God on those who fell severity but toward you goodness if you continue in his goodness otherwise you too will be cut off." One of the greatest things about God is his character. Now, now it's not a good thing if you're on the wrong side of it. Because just as God will always turn and forgive those who will repent, and he will relent of that punishment. At the same time, it is impossible for him to keep on cleansing and forgiving those who refuse to repent. 2 Timothy 2, 11 through 13. You know, a number of years went by, quite a few years, a little over a century if I recall correctly. And Nineveh, over the course of time, went back to her old ways. The prophet Nahum records how that same great city, Nineveh, that repented at the preaching of Jonah, later turned back. They later turned back and stopped repenting and stopped doing the right thing. They stopped following God, and, and when they did, God destroyed them. And, and Nahum makes this very, very, very clear. 
that that is exactly what happened because they failed to continue to repent. And brethren, I gotta tell you right now, New Testament says same thing can happen to us as Christians. Second Peter chapter two, verses 20 through 22. If we continue to repent and ask God's forgiveness, we know his character. He will, continue to love, he will continue to forgive us, 1 John 1. But we also know that when we stop repenting, we stop caring about sin, and we just walk away, we know there comes a time when God's grace and patience runs out just as well. That's his character. It's always been that way. This idea that once saved, always saved, that's a lie. It doesn't matter how much anybody repeats it, it's still a lie. You can fall from grace, Galatians 5 and verse 4. That's why when I baptize anybody, one of the verses I go over is the typical baptism verses, but I also go over 2 Peter 2, 20 through 22. Because you can't get out there and then turn back. It would be better for you if you'd never become a Christian in the first place than for you to become a Christian and then get out there and turn back to the world. It's impossible to change God's character. Fourth and final thing that is truly impossible we find in the book of Jonah. It is impossible to please God without a godly love and concern for those lost in sin. It is impossible to please God without a godly love and concern for those lost in sin. Maybe that's the greatest message of Jonah. Maybe that's the greatest impossibility that needs to be brought to bear. It certainly seems to be the, the big one for Jonah that he had to learn. When we are out and about on the streets of Shoto or Pryor or Maisie or the other surrounding towns working and playing and shopping and recreating, and we refuse to look for opportunities, make opportunities or take advantage of opportunities tell the lost about Jesus that are all around us every day. To tell them when we refuse to tell them about this Christ who died to take away our sins. When we refuse to carry out that great commission to go and tell them, are we really any different than Jonah was before the big fish? Are we really that different? No, I don't run from God. I, you know, I come to church. I want running. Did God tell Jonah to go to Nineveh and tell him to repent, did he? Yep. Does God tell us to go and to talk to the lost about him? Yep. You need to be very careful, because quite frankly, there aren't many big bodies of water that'll carry a fish that big here for us to get sucked into and spit out three days later. And I don't think it would work anyway. Salvation and godliness is more than just simply having the right doctrine, the right church name, and the right worship checklist. Those are important, but, but salvation and godliness is much more than those three things. Without a sincere love for the Lord, for the lost, and for one another, It profits us nothing, 1 Corinthians 13, 1 through 3. As we get ready to conclude the lesson this morning, it is not, capital 
emboldened, underlined, N-O-T, not. It is not impossible for God to send a great wind to stir up a mighty tempest on the sea any more than it was impossible for Jesus to calm such a storm with a word. It's not impossible. Also, it is not, capital N-O-T, highlight, embolden, underline, not impossible for God to prepare a great fish to swallow Jonah and to keep him alive in that fish's belly for three days. Or to have that fish vomit him out onto dry land, as we read about in Jonah 1.17 and 2.10. Those are not impossibilities. Not at all. Not even close. Instead, the four impossible things that we find in the book of Jonah... It's impossible to run from God, to go to a place where he cannot see you in what you are doing. Number two, it is impossible to alter the commands of God just because we don't want to obey them. Number three, it is impossible for God to change his character and not be severe with those who refuse to repent or for him not to forgive and accept all those who do repent and obey him. And number four, it is impossible to be right before God without having, developing even, a love for the lost, enough to share with them the gospel at every opportunity possible. It is impossible to love the Lord our God with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength unless we are willing to love our neighbor as ourselves as Jonah should have loved the Ninevites and shared the gospel with them any more than it is possible which it is not to be pleasing to God if we do not love and forgive our brethren from the heart as well so the invitation I offer this morning is this. Not pointing fingers, I'm not. Because if I did, I'd have you know, three times that many pointing right back here. I'm just asking the question. It's the word of God that convicts. I'm just asking the question. Where are you this morning in your life? Are you running from God? Are you running to him? If you are in a raging storm this morning, please do not wait until you are spiritually where Jonah was physically when he prayed to the Lord in chapter 2, verses 3 through 6, wherein it says, For you cast me into the deep, and the floods surrounded me. All your billows and your waves passed over me. Then I said, I have been cast out of your sight. The water surrounded me even to my soul. The deep closed around me. Weeds were wrapped around my head. I went down to the moorings of the mountains. The earth with its bars closed behind me. If you're in a raging storm this morning, don't wait until you are at that point spiritually where Jonah was physically. It's over. I'm toast. It's done. I want you to remember that no matter where you are this morning, no matter where you've been, no matter what you've done or no matter what you have not done, 
that the God for whom it is impossible to lie, it is also impossible for him to turn away any, any, any sincere seeker who would turn to him in any way, shape, or form. God promised if we sought, we would find. God will not run away from us when we run to him like the father and the prodigal son. Maybe you've been out there places you shouldn't have been, wasting time, wasting all these things. God wants to run to you this morning, just like the father did to the prodigal son. Run to him, not away from him. If you have a need this morning, please come to the front right now as we stand and sing.